Chapter Twenty Eight of *The Hawk of Egypt* by Joan Conquest, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Twenty Eight. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it purple, the midst thereof being paved with love. Song of Solomon. Accustomed to the flowing robes of the Arab, it is not as difficult as it might be imagined to break a desert-trained horse to side-saddle, but the mare, Piquet, spoilt and sensitive, behaved like a very demon, whilst the Saïs exchanged the maraca, which is the native pad without stirrups, for the lady's saddle. She was not really bad, not she. She was simply a spoilt beauty, and inclined to show off, so that every time her big, beautiful eye caught the sheen of the girl's satin cloak, she backed and reared and plunged, but more out of mischief than wickedness. For many days she had been ridden alternately astride and side by the Saïs, who loved her better than his wife and almost as much as his son, ridden from the tents of purple and gold, and not over-willingly did she go, to the gate of to-morrow at sunset, to be taken back at a tearing gallop to the tents, without restraining or guiding hand upon the reins, at sunrise. It was not sunrise now, and she did not like the person in the shimmering satin who had, in some miraculous way, swung to her back and stayed there. But she was headed in the direction of home, and the moonlight was having just as much effect upon her temperament as it had on those of humans. A moonstruck horse or a moonstruck camel in the desert is a weird picture, and it were wise, as they are for the moment absolutely fay, to give them an extremely wide passage. "'Guide her not, lady,' shouted the Saïs to Damaris, who answered to the movement of the mare like a reed in the wind, but otherwise seemed to take no notice of horse or man or moon, or untoward circumstance. He hung on for a moment to the silken mane, and stared up into the girl's unseeing eyes. Then, with a ringing shout, let go and jumped nimbly to one side. There was no backing, no rearing, or vagary of any sort now, the mare started on her journey, broke into a canter, broke into a gallop, then, silken mane and tail flying, thundered back at terrific speed, along the path marked out by her own dainty hooves, and the relentless feet of that hound, Fate. Damaris turned in the saddle and looked behind, then to her right and then to her left. She was alone in the desert. The sands, stretched like a silver carpet in front of her, and like a silver carpet with the black ribbon woven across it by the mare's feet behind— to the east and west, where the sandy waste seemed to undulate in the great fawn and amethyst and blue-gray waves, so tremendous was the beast's pace, the horizon looked as though draped in curtains, gossamer light and opalescent, the heavens stretched, silvery and cold, as merciless as a woman who has ceased to love. And then, just as on the far horizon there showed a mound, which might have been a hillock of sand or a verdant patch, outcome of precious water, or a slowly moving caravan of heavily laden camel, the mare, Piquet, increased her pace. You would not have noticed it, for it would have seemed to you that she was already all out, but you would, as Damaris, if you knew anything about horses, have felt it, had you been riding her. It was that last grain of the last ounce by which races are won, the supreme effort of the great sporting instinct, which lies in all thoroughbreds, human or animal, and Damaris thrilled to the innermost part of her being as she sensed rather than felt the quiver which passed through the mare, leant forward and touched the satin neck. That which distance had given the appearance of a mound grew more and more distinct. It was no mound or hillock, verdant patch or slowly moving caravan of cattle. Three tents at last shone distinctly, and the following is the short explanation of their origin. As it is not good for the oriental youth to say under the same roof of his mother, once he has come to man's estate, 
which is at any age after eleven in the lands of intense sun, the building of the house and Mahaba near the oasis of Kergag had been begun with the first year of the birth of Hugh Carden Ali. Owing to the entreaties of his English mother, the boy had not been affianced in extreme youth to a little maid of two or three or four summers, upon whom he would not set eyes until the night of his marriage. His mother had idolized him, and he had worshipped her. He obeyed her, he would willingly have died for her. Later, at her request, he even left his country of sunshine in vivid colouring for hers, so cold and bleak. But before that, and at the age when other high-caste youth of Arabia settle down in their own house, to contemplate seriously the taking of the reins into their own despotic hands, he had absolutely refused to go to the house and Mahaba, built for him as his father's first-born. Perhaps also it was the English blood in his veins at which that age filled him with the spirit of adventure. A desire for solitude, a desire for something sterner than the everyday existence of his luxurious life, had driven him out into the desert, where, bewitched, as it were of woman, he had followed the spirit which ever held out her long, fine hand with a beckoning finger. A mere boy? Absurd! Ridiculous! Not at all, for the high-cased boy of twelve in the Orient is oft-times as much developed physically and mentally as the Occidental of over twenty. He had followed the spirit where she had beckoned, and an Arab through the blood of his father had caught her and crushed the body, slender to gauntness, in his arms, had twined the fingers in his coarse black hair and pulled it back from the different coloured eyes, had sought the crimson mouth until his lips had rasped with the kisses a grit with sand, slept with his hands clutching her tattered ribbons of saffron, purple and gold, torn the misty veil from before her face, and dreamed with her cool breath, which is the wind of dawn upon his face. He loved her, and to her he had pitched his tents. He prayed that he might be with her when he died, and, convinced that his prayer would be answered, he had pitched him a funeral tent between those of purple and of gold. Bewitched of the desert, the colour of the tents resembled those in which she decks herself in the passing of a night and a day. Outwardly they were just ordinary Bedouin tents, the tan and brown of camel-hide, flat-roofed and square, giving a full-grown man room in which to move and stand to his full stature without the fear as in the peaked affair called Bell, of bringing the whole thing down upon his crown. They lifted at each side to allow the desert wind to enter at any hour it listed, or the moon to pierce him with silvery spear, or the stars to blaze like jewels before his eyes, as he waited for sleep on a rug upon the sand. The one in which he slept was hung inside with satin curtains of deepest purple, with here and there a star of silver, which glittered in the light of the cut crystal lamp which hung from the cross-pole. The Persian rug upon the floor was grey and old rose and faintest yellow, and glistened like the skin of woman. Of the ordinary furnishings of an ordinary bedroom there was no sign. You would have to go much further afield to find the tent with all the paraphernalia of the toilette. Just as you would have to go still further, and towards the west, to where were pitched the stables and the quarters of the specially chosen servants he took with him in his desert wanderings, just enough, and they had their work cut out, to look after the dogs and birds and horses. The camels, upon whom depended the supplies, were right out of sight, and any one of the servants would have preferred death by torture to approaching within a mile of his master's tents until he heard his call. In the other tent he ate his bread and dates, and drank his coffee, or received the humblest of his passing brothers, those who, scorched with heat, tortured with thirst or hunger, and blinded with flying sand, 
yet would not exchange one minute of their own free desert life for an eternity of soft couches and the most succulent effort of a cordon bleu in the cramped surroundings of a crowded city. It was hung with orange satin, cushions of every hue were flung upon a carpet of violet colours, the lamps of bronze with wicks, floating in crimson saucers, hanging from the cross-pole, were rarely lit. The satin curtains hid a smaller room behind, filled with dates and coffee-beans, sweetmeats, beads, and other things which bring joy to the grateful heart of the wandering Arab and his family. The sand outside was marked and pressed down with the footprints of men and women and little children. They had not to ask in order to receive. But no foot but his had ever trod the fine matting of the tent between the other two. Firmly convinced that his prayer would be granted, and that in the desert he would find the answer to the many questions which had occurred to him to ask of life, he had sought for a covering under which he could lie after death, until naught but his bones should be left for the wind of chance to play with. He had all a Mohammedan's belief in the hand of destiny, but the English blood in his veins filled him with horror at the thought of being torn to pieces by vultures after death, his desert blood filled him with an equal horror at the thought of being weighted down by the regulation tomb of bricks and mortar. And so it came to pass, on this night of the full moon, when the girl he loved was racing towards him, and fate was disentangling the threads she had knotted so grievously, that he lay stretched upon the block of wood, which stood three feet high in the centre of this tent. He lay face downwards, with chin in hand, looking out through the lifted flap in the direction of Mecca, whilst the moon hung as a silver shield above him, and the desert enfolded him on every side. Outwardly the tent was as that of any Bedouin, tan and brown, the colour of the camel's hide, of which it was made, square-roofed, with one side only which lifted, the side which was towards Mecca. Inside it was lined with a copy of the Queen's funeral canopy of the softest leather, stretched square, to the touch as soft, supple, and fine as velvet. True, this copy had not taken year upon year to make, nor had scores and scores of nimble fingers stitched and stitched for days and months to finish it, as in the days of the nineteenth dynasty. The panels in the copy were of one piece of hide stitched finely by machinery, with the emblems painted upon them after the stitching. In the original they are made by the stitching together by hand of thousands and thousands of pieces of gazelle hide, each of which had been painted either pink or blue or green, in various shades of yellow before the stitching." looked up with Hugh Cardinali as he lifted his head to gaze at something far beyond the tent-roof. You will see a copy of the central square which, divided into two, rested upon the top of the shrine which covered the dead queen who died about one hundred years after the siege of Troy. On one side of the panel is sprinkled with yellow and pink rosettes on a pale blue ground. The other side shows the vulture, the emblem of maternity, holding in his claws the feather of justice. Six there are in all. That is the ceiling." The tent-walls are lined with a copy of the flaps which hung down on each side of the shrine of the funeral-boat of the Egyptian queen who, some thousand years before Christ, crossed the blue-green Nile, followed by other boats filled with her priests and her princes, her officers, her mourning women. North and south the flaps are of a chessboard pattern in squares of pink and green, behind one of which was hidden the small room, which held naught but a crystal pitcher and crystal basin, filled to the brim with water for the ablutions, at the hour of Nazam, which is the hour of prayer. Near the top the sides show bands of colour, red, yellow, green, and blue, almost as bright in the original as on the day the paints were mixed, one thousand years ago. Beneath the bands upon one side you will see the signet ring of the priest-king Pinotem, whose son, Queen Issa M. Keb, espoused, 
also the royal asp and the scarab, the emblem of life out of death. Upon the other wall you will see the lotus-flower, which opens at the rising of the sun and closes at its setting, the enigmatic double-headed ducklings and the picture of a gazelle, which is doubtless the representation of the pet which, bound in mummy trappings, was found beside its royal mistress in the tomb. Across the lotus-flowers, like a silvery shaft, there hung a light throwing-spear. A very technical description, taken down in rough notes at the museum, of a specimen of patchwork, even like the patchwork counterpanes of our great-grandmothers, stitched together by dusky slender fingers in the days of the great King Solomon. And, to Hugh Cardin Ali, as he lay in his tent, looking towards Mecca, there came the sound, from a great distance, as of a horse running at full speed. End of chapter 28 Read by Sibella Denton For more information, please visit LibriVox.org